So hi, and welcome back to the History Machine podcast. This is episode 14 on the Warring States period of Chinese history. Of all the episodes we've had to record, this is one that actually has required listening. So if you haven't listened to episode 13 on early China, we would strongly advise that you please go back and listen to it because we're going to be throwing out some jargon. We're going to be putting out names and the context for what exactly you're following will be very, very difficult. So for this episode, what we're going to focus on is where the Qin, which is one of the seven warring states, are going to get the momentum and start conquering the rest of the areas around them. So under the rule of Duke Zhiyo of the Qin, the state has reached out for political and philosophical help in order to strengthen his state. At this time, the Qin are incredibly poor, they have been decimated by seemingly non-stop warfare, and they need a breather and some time to recover. And in this moment of absolute desperation, the Qin have decided for a free-for-all in political thought. They are throwing out carrots and sticks to try and get any kind of the hundred schools of philosophical thought to please come to Qin, the deemed backwater, do your experiments as long as you're going to strengthen the state because we are on the back foot right now and Qin thoroughly needs to actually recuperate, recover and get back into a position of some kind of significance and power. So a very, very important figure moves from the kingdom of Wei into Qin to provide this assistance. And you'll remember from the last episode, assuming you took her advice and went back and listened to it, that the Wei were the kingdom that were riding high earlier, but had just been had just taken a series of losses and were now yes. kind of the ones leaving the power vacuum. Yes. So at this time, a very, very significant individual moves into Qin, and he is known as Lord Shang. Now, Lord Shang is a citizen of the kingdom of Wei. In his lifetime, when he was serving under the kingdom of Wei, he was a relatively minor official, but he was very heavily recognized that he was important, that he was intelligent, that he was capable, and this was recognized by his mentor and the then prime minister of the kingdom of Wei, Xu Zhu of Wei. On his deathbed, Xu Zhu suggested to the then Wei king he should make Shang Yang, this relatively minor official, the next prime minister. Now, the king is very surprised at this idea. It's like, what kind of recommendation is this? I would expect better from my prime minister. Is this man really all that? Effectively, the answer was, yes, he is. He's all that in a bag of chips. Um, so the other advice was, if you do not make this man your prime minister, to go against my general advice and do something a little bit different, then what we thoroughly advise you to do is kill this man, because you do not want to let him loose as an intellectual powerhouse for another state. Now, the King of Wei at the time decides to do neither of these options, and this is where it's got to lead to the Qin getting to a much better position of power. Lord Shang is now given the free hand in Qin to implement his experimental policies. What he wants to do is introduce the philosophy of legalism. So, what is legalism? So, the hundred schools of thought, we've already briefly touched on Confucianism. But legalism is quite different. It is almost the opposite of Confucianism. What legalism preaches is that everything is strictly adhered and governed and ruled by law. Power is the only virtue. Legalism adheres very, very strictly to a stern rule of law. The punishments are draconian and there are no exceptions. It assumes, unlike Confucianism, that people are lazy. They're greedy, they're cowardly, they're foolish, they're gluttonous, they want everything for themselves, they do not want to work. It assumes the worst qualities of people and that the only way to get around this is to implement laws and rules to stop that from happening. And it does this, it implements these laws and rules through fear, power and the use of brute force. And it is completely totalitarian. Lord Shang is let to go and experiment and use them as he sees fit. So, for example, Lord Shang has the Qin, Duke, organize people into groups of five to ten families that will spy and report on each other for the benefit of the state. 
He gives the death penalty of cutting people in two at the waist for a punishment for just about anything. And legalism has this concept that if anything is a crime, the punishment should be absolutely severe and without exception. So it's the kind of thing of like, you stole a piece of fruit, death penalty. You committed treason, death penalty. You jaywalked, death penalty. And if you've got a problem with that, then don't commit a crime. You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to go against the state. Just make sure you don't do anything wrong and everything will be absolutely perfect. So it's it's in for a penny, in for a pound. Everything is completely black and white. There is no exceptions at all. Sounds just lovely. <laughs> it does. It, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful whole little situation to be in. Another example of the actions of Lord Shang, let do what he wants, is he decides, let's move the Qin capital about 100 kilometers or roughly 60 miles west to Zhang Yang. Now, Zhang Yang is better strategically positioned along the Wei River. So the idea is we've moved the capital. It's now in a better place. This is better for the state. It's better for everybody. I don't care if it inconveniences. This is what we're going to do. And it's all about the benefit of the state. So for legalism, for your officials that are in government, intelligence, thoughtfulness, judgment, and wisdom are deemed completely unwanted qualities because it's going to breed criticism and opposition to the state. You don't need to know what you're doing. You just need to know that you're doing it. So the ultimate goal of all of these policies is to ensure you've got a strong army and that you've got a good farming class to feed that army. Now, unsurprisingly, Lord Shang was incredibly unpopular to the point where he always had to move around with bodyguards. You can imagine he's Machiavellian before there's a Machiavelli. Uh, and all of this is aimed at the ruling class, his teachings. So the teachings of Lord Shang, he shares them only with the, the Qin ruling family. And it only really deals with how to use power in a very tyrannical fashion. It's got nothing to do with like, how do you hold on to power? Or how do you obtain power? Or how do you move up in the world? Now, in a very Orwellian fashion, Lord Shang organizes the burning of historical books to control the historical narrative and prevent a kind of nostalgic backlash. So the idea being that if the times right now seem very harsh, you don't want somebody going back saying, times were way better when we'd had this. It's if I can control the narrative of the past, you don't need to worry about what the past is about. You just need to focus on the right now. Not the good old days where I still had my legs and waist. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, to his credit, Lord Shang also had the Duke of Qin apply laws to all levels of status and power. And this would include up to and including the ruling, the ruling family. So this would eventually come back to haunt Shang. Because when the Duke died, Lord Shang was executed by being drawn by chariots and cut in two at the waist. However, ultimately, his policies led to this Qin state that was just ready for war, ready for conquest, built up with a good population, a good farming class, and a very, very well-drilled, well-put-together army. Right. So with this, you know, super, like, super organized, put together army, the chin have to point it at something and, you know, fire. So now we're going to move on to one of the big four generals of the Warring State period. And he is Bai Chi of Chin. So Bai Chi is remembered as an incredibly aggressive commander. He's remembered as a complete and utter butcher of men. He famously never lost a battle. And he was promoted and demoted throughout his career, just in terms of where he was, what he was doing on the political field or on the military field. So let's take a small look at the 293 BC battle involving Bai Chi of Qin and the Wei and Han enemies he's going to be attacking. Because they were perceived to be quite weak, the Qin had been ignored by the Wei and the Han. Bai Chi of Qin captures a Han fortress in around 294 BC. Now the Wei and the Han decide to unite to deal with the Qin. So this is 240,000 troops, which is two armies, against one Qin army of roughly 120,000 troops. Now the Qin were better trained and equipped because the war economy that they had created through legalism was geared for just this purpose. The Wei and the Han, despite their numerical advantage, decided we should go on the defense keeping in mind that the Qin were very well drilled, the army had obviously improved, their equipment was better, and 
because you've got too many cooks really spoiling the broth here in terms of who's in charge of what and why, it made it a little bit more difficult for the, the way in the hand to decide exactly what they wanted to do, because really they were only loosely aligned. They decide to have only light engagements and they come to some kind of military stalemate. Now, Bai Chi discovers that the Wei and Han are only loosely aligned. And because of this, Bai Chi lures away segments of the Han army and only the Han army. And he proceeds to skirmish and ambush them repeatedly. He then focuses the main assault on the Wei. Now, with these light skirmishes that are picking away at the Han, and then a main focus assault on the Wei, the Wei are really, really pissed at the Han because they believe the Han have left them high and dry. But in reality, they're dealing with little, just minor attacks and skirmishes on their side. The Han, in response to the Wei getting annoyed at them, provide less and less support to the Wei. And eventually, Bai Chi of Qin campaigns to pick off Wei piecemeal and only focuses on the way, now that he has this rift created. And once the way are defeated, he focuses all of his attention on the Han forces. So now, both Wei and Han secede valuable land to Qin, because they have both lost. A little bit of a back and forth, it seems to be a common theme we're finding in, the, in these Chinese history battles. There's a lot of steps and phases to the plan. And as each of them succeed, we move along further in the plan until we have some kind of really impressive victory. So Bai Chi is remembered as an absolute butcher of men throughout his career. He's recorded to have killed as many as a million men in his campaigns. And once again, we said he never lost a battle. So Cahill, what does the history machine think of the battle that we've just covered? It actually had at a roughly... As a 50-50, mm-hmm. even though the way in the hand had the bigger army, it did appreciate that the Chin army was a bit better prepared, better equipped, and that kind of balanced things out. Yes. The losses were way above expectation, though, uh, for the way in the hand. They lost about 52-53% more than expected, and that is probably just down to the kind of picking off one bit of the army at a time, working through them. You know, it's something that, look through the history books, that was the technique that worked for Napoleon. It worked for me against some of the worst AIs in the early Total War games. Like, if you if you can successfully lure bits of the enemy army, so really you turn... Yeah. You know, the numeric advantage means nothing if they're only attacking you a little bit of time against your whole army. So, um, yes. yeah, it, it worked phenomenally well, and the history machine here really... Yeah, it was a 50-50 battle, but they dealt out so much more casualties than expected, and they took about 13% fewer casualties than expected, too. So um, a very strong victory in terms of just kind of annihilating the enemy army while keeping your own one intact. It's very impressive. And it's very, like, obviously he's remembered now as one of the... We've mentioned at the very start, he's one of the big four commanders of the Warring States period. So you don't get to be one of the big four of seven states by not being at least good. To move on, in 278 BC, Bai Chi moves on against the Chu kingdom and he begins to siege the Chu capital. In this battle and during this siege, he redirects water and proceeds to drown a reported 100,000 people. Now, Cahill, let's go into the figures very quickly of this, because that is a lot of people to drown on the fly. Yeah, I think this battle, we mostly just want to mention because it really supports what you mentioned with him just being remembered as a butcher of men, because the history machine felt that he had a near certain chance of winning this battle, regardless, but also that he dealt out 71% more casualties than expected. So... Just going on those figures alone, you kind of assume maybe this was a situation where the other side may have wanted to surrender and it wasn't accepted. You know, we don't know, we don't have that many details on the battle, but Mm. this is definitely one where I think he earns his reputation as just a butcher and just just horrific losses at this point. Like, just, like, against an army that it it really seems like they didn't have a chance. Um, Yeah, I I suppose, overkill, really. Yeah, overkill is the word. So I'm going to go through just a couple of his bits and pieces of battles because he continued, you know, he doesn't lose and he just keeps moving on forward, killing people and moving on and getting the Chin war machine rolling. So in 273 BC, he defeats a combined Zhao and Wei force. In 264 BC, he successfully besieges five Han forts, then proceeds 
to decapitate 50,000 prisoners of war. Now, we don't have enough details to add that into his, you know, killing record for the history machine, but it's still mad stuff. So we'll put aside Bai Chi for a small amount of time, and we're going to talk about another one of the big four generals of the Warring State period, and that is Lai Mu of Zhao. If there's one thing about Lai Mu, he is acknowledged as an absolutely excellent defensive general. So in 265 BC, he defended the Zhao against the Zhongnu nomads. Now, I have not really talked about the Zhongnu at all yet. So the Zhongnu are one of the many steppes people who encroach into the Chinese area and territories. They are named by the Chinese as the Zhongnu, according to some translations and etymology, because the word Zhongnu means bad slave. Now, supposedly, they made terrible slaves. Now, this isn't like, oh, no, they're just like, I don't know who makes a good slave. Sorry, I was just listening to a podcast about Christopher Columbus today. And one of the first letters he sent home was like, these people are going to make great slaves. <laughs> so apparently uh, Mesoamericans are the answer, according to Gunky Stores. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't want to touch any of that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> no. That's a bad one. Okay, so Columbus ignored in this situation. Not a good person to listen to, generally. Not a good person. No. <laughs> so it turns out the Xiangnu don't make good slaves. Now, supposedly the reason for this is that they're fiercely independent, they're prone to escape, and most importantly, they have zero experience as farmers. Now, if your goal is like, I want to capture some cheap labor and I want to get them to cultivate rice, which, as we mentioned in our previous episode, is a very convoluted and difficult task to do. You don't want to give it to somebody who, you know, will probably cut your throat in the middle of the night and also doesn't know how to, you know, till any soil, doesn't know how to plant crops, doesn't know how irrigation works, any of these things. So supposedly, Zhangdu means terrible slave. That was the name that was given to them. but. They are fiercely independent. They are nomads. They are light cavalry that attack with strong, powerful bows. They give the Chinese kingdoms that they encroach upon a lot of hassle. At times when they're very strong, they require, you know, great tribute and trade. They trade like silks for furs. They trade, you know, beer for horses, that kind of a thing. So to get back to Lai Mu of Zhao, he is going to have to deal with these Zhangnu nomads. So Lai Mu was placed in command to deal with the encroaching Zhangnu. To tackle this, he builds extensive fortifications, so he's remembered constantly as this defensive commander. He kept his men well fed, he gave them the authority to appoint their own officials, and he concluded that every time the Zhangnu raid, the Zhao should light some beacons, retreat to their fortification, and pick them off at a distance until the Zhangnu gradually you know, get tired and retreat from the missile fire. Both the Zhongnu and the state of Zhao believed Laimu to be a coward. And so under a combination of political pressure and the Zhongnu not liking this, he was replaced with another very ambitious and aggressive Zhao commander. Now, at this point, the Zhao decided to go on the attack, resulting in heavy casualties. There's no way to get around that one. Because of this big blunder, Aimu returns to command under the sole condition that he be allowed to resume the usual approach of retreating to fortified positions, and this was deemed acceptable. He then believed when he finally had enough troops trained up and kept well fed to strike back hard at the Zhongnu. So he had them drilled relentlessly, he scattered them over the countryside, and when the Zhongnu engaged, Aimu feigned defeat by sacrificing, this sounds awful, but sacrificing a few thousand troops when the numbers are inflated, but still, and then retreat to a fortified areas in Zhao itself, going back even further. Now the Zhongnu, like a lion chasing a wounded animal, believed that they had secured a fabulous victory, and they decided they are going to pursue them deep into the Zhao territory, where then they were surrounded, picked off, and took very heavy casualties. Now, the Zhao would follow up with this by attacking other nomadic tribes that just happened to be near the border and neighboring the Zhongnu. Now, because of this, 
the Xiongnu and other nomadic tribes would not encroach or raid Zhao territory for at least a decade. So Cahal, let's go in to the battle against the Xiongnu led by Laimu. So for this we have it split into three different sections as you described there. Part one we have Laimu against Xiongnu and you can kind of see why why they kind of took him off the job afterwards because yes he did win but with the resources he had he was expected to according to the history machine. Okay. He, was given maybe a 90% chance to win, uh, just under 90% chance. Mm -hmm. And he dealt out 20% fewer casualties than you'd expect. But he won. And like, we've gone through before, and, and it'll come up again. Horse archers, for millennia really, you just couldn't take them on an open battle. He just did the sensible thing. He went into fortifications, which it takes their mobility away. If, you know, they can't really do that much damage if you're in a good kind of armored defended position. And like, yes, you can't deal out huge casualties to them either. You're just kind of picking off what you can, but you win. <laughs> and in the end, that's that's the most important thing, to win. Because then we see part two, where the Xiongnu just destroy. And again, like the Zhao have, they're better resourced. History Machine expected to the, them to win. It gave them about a 75% chance to win the part two battle, which then they lost and they took about 10% more casualties than expected and dealt out, you know, 26% fewer to the Zhongyu. So even when they, went, when they went aggressive, they actually dealt out fewer casualties than when they went passive. Right. And it makes sense because it like, it might seem cowardly or like, oh, you're so defensive, but it's, it's playing the defensive side to go, well, these are guys on, they are skilled horse archers that are raiding and encouraging into the territory. Yeah. The last thing you want is an open field. Yeah. With them. Yes. You don't want, yeah, you don't want to give them just a flat open field to encircle you and shoot and run away and like sting and fly away or to, you know, just cause damage and flee when they want to flee. It's, you want to get your guys, you know, with like, who are definitely not the same caliber of archer as a nomadic horse archer into a fine fortified position and just pick them off piecemeal. And not, not waste lives for the sake of just wasting it. Yeah. And then you see part three, Limu, again, expected with the kind of superior Chinese resources, expected to win the battle about 85% of the time, but he dealt out 9% more casualties than expected, took 10% fewer than expected. And I also just think it's an interesting approach because the other thing you get with horse archers usually are feigned retreats where they will lure you in and then yes. pick you off. And it's interesting seeing that flipped where it's... It's it's the horse archers being you know susceptible, being the ones lured into the trap. Yeah, you just I, you just have to appreciate that for the reversal, I suppose. Um, and it's it's not crazy numbers compared to what the history machine would expect, but definitely very competent, very just sensible. Yeah, I think in a hypothetical situation, if I had to go back in time and have a commander, sensibility would be very high on my you know list of things I would like them to be able to do. Yeah, and I think as well, you look at the superior resources and like. Impressive battles don't come out of good logistics, but wars are won on good logistics. And I think really that's that's what Limu was accomplishing. He kind of waited until the resources were in place. He made sure they had defenses to retreat to. Everything was very well organized, it seems like. And that's what won it for them. But I suppose under Limu, there was, they never had the possibility of something horrible going wrong. Because you might go, listen, you've got way more resources. Maybe you should just use it and strike hard and fast and take take out the Zhongnu as quickly as you can. And if you look at the art of war, often it says like you don't want the long protracted war. But almost contrary to that idea, this makes a lot of sense to kind of go, no, you're you're in an advantageous position. You don't want to do something too crazy or risky. And then eventually they'll slip up and they do. Yeah. And you take advantage of that slip up. And as well, these are people, you know, they're really... It's, it seems the context is they're they're raiding. They're not going for a full-on conquest or anything. If they feel like they're not making headway and they're taking more losses than they'd like to, they're going to find a softer target. You know, they, they will move on. It's so, so you can, I think in this case, afford to outlast them. Definitely. So he's an interesting commander. We'll come back to him again. And very, very defensive. And I, I like that defensive because we, we're after seeing, you know, the very heavy, aggressive general. And now we're seeing the very heavy, defensive general. Let's move on. So meanwhile, while this is happening, the Qin are going to attack the Han. Now, we don't really have data on these engagements, but the city of Qinquang was on the verge of capture by the Qin. And in response, the Han decide at the last minute to secede control of the whole area that's about to be conquered by the Qin to the Zhao. So it's kind of like a last minute, you know, 
flipping the bird at them of like, well, if we're about to lose this and we're going to lose this because we're at war with you, how about we just donate all of our assets and resources and land or whatever it might be here in this area to a whole other kingdom and now you don't get to get it because we gave it to them. So you're too late. Um, actually, that happened to the Romans with the Samnites. Like the Samnites and the Romans, I think it's going to come back to, to that kind of a grievance where the Chin are going to be very annoyed of what just happened. So in 262 BC, the Chin army, led by a general named Wang He, invade the Zhao territory of Shangdang. And this leads to the Battle of Changping. Now, the Zhao are led by a very capable commander, Lian Po, who is the third member of our big four commanders of the Warring States period. Lian Po is determined to avoid a field battle with the Qin. He is confident that a field battle would just be playing straight into the Qin's strategy. So he engages the Qin with guerrilla tactics and small skirmishes only and leaves it at that. Just bleed him dry bleed them slowly, let them waste their resources and let them move on to something else, but do not engage them in a direct field battle. Now the Qin state are suffering from this attrition and they're very keen to have Lian Po removed from command. So they send spies to the Zhao court to spread rumours that Lian Po is senile and he's a coward. Now this will come up a few times, but I'm just going to take a small bit of a side note. Even in The Art of War, they mention the importance of spies. And when you see how some of these battles and some of this story goes, I think with a well-placed spy, you can do more damage than a well-placed army. Because the king of Zhao, with a little help from these court shenanigans and spies, decides that enough is enough, and I'm going to dismiss Lian Po, and I'm fed up with this long-term attrition strategy. I want a nice field battle, I want a nice quick victory, and I want to just stick it to the chin. So the king of Zhao then decides to replace the excellent Lian Po with an untested, but from excellent military stock, Commander Qiu. So Zhao Qiu is the son of a very capable and renowned general, Zhao Shi, and is part of a very long and very prestigious military line. However, in this case, the apple really appears to have fallen very far away from the tree. Now, on his deathbed, Zhao Shi announces that his son is way too much of an armchair general and has no concept of actually fighting in a battle. Kind of like us, but he's all theory, no practice, and he'll never properly adept to the realities of warfare as it happens. And he treats this like a hobby and a game, and he should not be allowed to be in charge of troops. So very much like us. <laughs> so. Now, um, small side note, it'd be pretty awful if your dad kind of went on his deathbed. You're terrible. You should never be allowed to do anything. <laughs> but for the importance and goodness of the state, we need to adhere to this. So, um, so anyway, uh, upon hearing that the Zhao have replaced possibly the general of his generation with an untested newcomer, the Qin very secretly replaced General Wang He with an aging, but still very capable, Bai Qi. Now I have to say this, because tremendous effort was undertaken to ensure that none of this information gets out. The Zhao are expecting to take on a very defensive commander in Wang He, and they are unknowingly planning an assault on probably the most aggressive commander in the whole Warring States period of history, Bai Chi. Bai Chi's getting on a little bit in age. They don't know this is happening, but it's literally they're going to attack the best attacker. So in 26 BC, the Zhao switched from the defense to the offensive, and the Zhao abandoned almost all of their defensive fortifications that they had been entrenched in at that time. Well, as the Zhao attack, they notice that the left flank seems quite weak. Now, Bai Chi has purposely left it this way because he's filled it with almost exclusively light troops and exposed them in very thin ranks, but he's baiting an attack. And that bait is from the right wing of the Zhao heavy troops to come forward, engage these troops, 
smash through it and have a nice encirclement. It's just a, a textbook thing to do. They think we're on the offensive. We're fighting a defensive commander. This is, you know, this is a big mistake. We, we're going to go ahead with it. We're going to power through. Unknown to Zhao Qiao, Bai Qi has had fortifications built on a hill just behind his left flank for them to very quickly and safely retreat to. So as the attack unfurls, they go over the hill and the troops retreat to these unseen fortifications. And now he has effectively neutered the main assault of the Zhao. So their best and brightest troops are kind of pinned down. And now, like, you know, the best part of the Zhao army has been somewhat neutralized. Now, meanwhile, in a move that is often deemed very similar to Kane, Bai Qi uses his remaining forces and then envelops the Zhao army, completely containing them. The Zhao naturally panic. But somehow, and I find this, it's such a strange story, they have some ample material and they're able to set up a defensive position and dig in. The Zhao attempt to break out of any section of this encirclement, but they are completely surrounded. Now the Qin army continues to surround the Zhao army and they starve them for a reported 46 days. And the Zhao are hoping and waiting for some kind of reinforcements, but nothing is on the way to arrive. At this point, the Zhao are reportedly reported to have resorted to cannibalism. So the Zhao are relentlessly resisting, and this is causing more losses than the Qin would have expected. You know, the surrounding for more than a month, which sounds insane, you know, you, you think they would just have picked them off straight away or would have done it, but it's kind of a little confusing aspect of this. It seems to be that they, they encircle them, they're going to start them out, and they're going to do what they do. The Qin continue just to besiege this fortified makeshift area, and they lose troops in the process, but they keep peppering the Zhao troops with missile fire. And eventually, Zhao Qiao is killed as a result of, of an arrow. Bai Qi wanted to take advantage of this success and press on into the Zhao territory, but he found himself with way too many prisoners of war to continue. So the Qin rounded up the remaining survivors and executed just about everybody, but they left a reported 240 people as telltale witnesses to what they just saw, this crazy massacre, and the Qin then were supposed to have buried most of the Zhao POWs alive. That's a crazy sequence of events. The surrounding, similar to Kane, it's meant to be more of a triangular surrounding, just the way that the lines had formed. Very surprised that the, the Zhao had enough material, food, water, everything to survive for the reported 46 days. But all of this, this battle leads to a Chinese idiom that traces its origin to these events. And roughly translated, it is meant to say, talking wars on paper, which is, you know, an idiom that refers to armchair general antics, great in theory, but really poor when it comes to practical things. So Cahill, with all that in mind, there was a quite a long sequence of events there that involved an old switcheroo. <laughs> <laughs> like to make sure that no one knew what we were doing here a lot of deception a lot of switching a lot of back and forth a lot of courtroom shenanigans a lot of um a lot of like using spies a lot of you know uh like getting rid of the big names and replacing them with the small names but what did the history machine think of this battle so again this is a battle that was split into in this case mm -hmm. two parts part one when it was still Lian Po. History Machine ranks his performances very good there. Uh, it only gave him a one-third chance oh, wow. to win. He dealt out 13% more casualties than expected, and in a very strong defensive performance, though again, this partially, partially as well, that the Jin had a very defensive general themselves, the Zhao took 44% fewer casualties than expected. So I think the History Machine was expecting this to be a very, very bloody battle, and neither side really took a massive amount but the Zhao in particular really managed to preserve their numbers in this one uh, so you can see why there's demand and politicking to get rid of Lian Po because the Jin just were not making any headway against him despite in the history machine's verdict you know it they should have had the advantage they were the favorites to win this and they just couldn't seem to make headway the second half of the battle with Bai Qi and Zhao Qiu was very different and perfectly in line with what we had said earlier with Bai Qi. It did seem as the favourite as it did before, still 
at them as a two-thirds chance of winning, but he dealt out 54% more casualties than expected. And I don't think we're even including the POWs buried alive in those numbers. Well, no, we weren't including it in that one. This is just the main se- battle sequence. He himself took 15% fewer as well. Really? But yeah, this was just... And I suppose part of that is just that there are very big numbers his machine expect, expected to be bloody on both sides. And even though maybe he took more than he would have liked, it's still not as much as the history machine thinks an average general would take. Well, I, I suppose he did get the full envelopment, yeah. which you kind of go, if, if it was meant to be just a, a tit-for-tat battle, you know, he probably would have lost a lot more of his army anyway. Because I know after the envelopment, the, the idea is like, they didn't capitalize on that as well as they possibly should have. And they just continued to pepper away the Zhao army with missile fire until, you know, they finally won. But even then, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, but that's not the same as having your your line your line to line man to man battle where we lose a lot more people the the period of the battle where you're expecting the most casualties they just didn't take it they managed to i, I suppose just 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 tie up all the all the heavy hitters from the Zhao army and just melt that they yeah they never really took that many casualties in the process but yeah again by key just massive <laughs> massive amounts of uh, casualties dealt out God, he's such a butcher. But I mean, like, we'll we'll come to it near the end. But like, he is just a. It's I I love the idea when I, when I heard this story the very when I heard about the story and I read about it the very first time I loved I had in my mind this almost idea of some Chinese official riding in on a horse to some area, you know, getting the old general out of retirement. It's like <laughs> we need you for one last, <laughs> one last <laughs> job. <laughs> like you know, I don't do this anymore. Yeah, because I think the. The last battle involving him that we went to deal with the Siege of Chu, um, that was 18 years yes. prior to this. Actually, I suppose a two-decade window is quite, for any profession, I suppose, is quite a, quite a big gap. Um, yeah. So in 258 BC, Bai Qi was very keen to capitalize on this recent devastating victory. But the then Prime Minister, Fan Zhu, who possibly, now this is what's written about it, but possibly under Zhao influence, again, another court spy, convinced the powers to be of the Qin state, namely King Zhao Zhang of the Qin. Hold off on that follow-up assault. Maybe rest the army for about a year. You know, they've been performing really well. Give them some R&R. Now, obviously, Bai Qi is furious at this kind of a thing. It's like, no, no, we need to capitalize right now. We've after winning the equivalent of the Battle of Kani, but in China. And I'm not making the same mistake as Hannibal here. I want to capitalize on this. <laughs> and Fan Zhu, the potentially treacherous prime minister, convinces the king not to do so. Now, meanwhile, also in 258 BC, Lian Po successfully defends the Zhao from an attack against the Yan. Now, we don't have any data on battle. And also the lack of data, I'll just say, is particularly frustrating because I like to use minimum three battles as a cutoff for where to rank our generals, and that leaves us with just two in our database. Yes. But anyway, this holdoff from the Qin, and the holdoff because the Qin did not follow up on their battle, made this success against the Yan possible. However... The Anpo now has a falling out and is now distrusted by the King of Zhao. And you would think of all of the people in the world that the King of Zhao should put some faith in, it might be Lianpo. But this is not the case. So after this, Lianpo flees to the Kingdom of Wei, and then he flees to the Kingdom of Chu as a general and as an advisor. And he will never command troops again for the Kingdom of Zhao. The Qin army, under the command of Wang Liang, besieged the Zhao capital. Now, Bai Qi was not for this expansion because he believed they had lost their momentum from the year of rest that they had had. And that had given the Zhao time to successfully recover, recuperate, get their bits and pieces together, form protective alliances and prepare for a Qin assault. Bai Qi was requested to lead the newly planned assault by King Zhao Xiang, but he refused on the grounds that the army was no longer resourced to take on the rejuvenated Zhao. And also, he publicly exclaimed that he believed this would be an unwinnable siege. And in the current state, he also didn't want to add a loss to his still unbeaten military record. In 256 BC, the Qin were defeated, so he called it, by a combined assault from the three kingdoms of Zhao, Chu and Wei in the Battle of Handan. Now, the Qin were besieging the Zhao capital, and then they were attacked by the supporting Chu and Wei armies, which were allied in that one-year interval 
where the Zhao had time to rest. So Cahill, what does the history machine think about this where the Qin had lost the momentum and Bai Chi decides to bow out of this one and they have an, an unsurprising loss probably on their side, but according to Bai Chi, something that he predicted must happen. So the history machine, in fact, thought this was an extremely winnable battle for the Qin and it actually has the highest wins over expectation possibly of any <laughs> battle. Um, it really only gave gave the Zhao Wei Chu alliance about a 2% chance to win this one. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I think, I have said before, I think the History Machine can get baffled by the huge numbers you get in Chinese armies. Yes. I think it might have been a case of this where it just kind of saw, like, you know, well, you're up against an army of, you know, 650,000 or something. It's like, don't it doesn't matter that you have half a million yourself. It's just... <laughs> It's, it's, just it's too, too much. much, but um, yeah, it did. It did have this as a big win against the odds uh, from their point of view. Casualty numbers as well, very high difference. Uh, the Chin took about thirty eight percent more casualties than expected and dealt out thirty six percent fewer. So just all around a military disaster by the Chin, and you know, history machine probably doesn't know as much about battle is spiky you know we just had the whole discussion on the talking wars on paper and that's literally what the history machine is yeah. <laughs> so uh, yes that's a good point yeah yeah it, it definitely thought that the chin should have won this they definitely shouldn't have taken as much many casualties as they did all around they should have done better now i can't imagine morale was very high when you have a, a general publicly explain i will not be commanding this army because i'm sure it's a loss that's never going to be a good thing it's like your boxing coach going, by the way, buddy, I bet on you to lose in the fourth round. <laughs> Don't disappoint me. <laughs> oh, God, it's awful. But um, yeah, so the, uh, the juggernaut has finally stopped. After this battle, the Qin King, King Zhao Zhang, is absolutely furious. And he makes a direct command to Bai Qi to once again take over as the commander and Bai Chi refuses to do so. Cut back again to the potentially treacherous, possibly spy, Prime Minister Fan Zhu, and he convinces the King of Qin to have Bai Chi arrested and killed on the grounds that if he does not serve you, he's pretty much useless, or he might defect, and he might even serve another kingdom. So Bai Chi is arrested, and then as he's arrested, he is forced to commit suicide in prison in the sense of you don't really have an option. And his reported last words were something to the effect of a terrible end like this is really fitting for a man such as myself who had so viciously ended so many other lives. So that is the end of our Bai Chi. Now, the unexpected upset puts a big spanner in the gears of the Qin war machine. They've just lost a phenomenal commander. They've lost this vicious momentum that they're building and the juggernaut built by the legalist ideologies and mechanisms and policies has come to a grinding halt. Um, so Lai Mu takes over a war against the Yan kingdom in 243 BC and that's because Lian Po had offered his military services to the kingdom of Wei and had relocated there because he had a falling out with the king. Now, Lai Mu is now the only available and capable general to their Zhao. So even after they have this time to recuperate and get their bits and pieces together and make sure that they're on board, they've only got one very capable commander left. The capable commander, promptly using the resources he has, captures the area of Wushu and Fangsheng during the Yan conflict that the Zhao have. Now, all of this aside, and I don't think we mentioned this at all, and it's probably too important not to mention, the Qin have lost their momentum, and we're about to move on to probably one of the most important figures in the whole Warring States period. And we're going to start talking about the first emperor. Now, we'll barely touch him in this episode. But before we do, you got to ask yourself the question, how do we know anything that we've been talking about? Anything in the subject, the battles, the figures, the information, like it's thousands of years ago. Who recorded it? What sources are you working from? What's, what's the information? Now, a very important note to make about all of this period of history and everything about this subject is virtually every piece of information about this period, including the Warring States and the First Emperor, everything comes from a single source, Shima Qian. Now, his works are known in English as the Records of the Grand Historian. 
So ignore my horrible Chinese pronunciations. I'm going to refer to him as simply the Grand Historian. The Grand Historian covers a time which, when it was recorded, was considered the world history up to and including his own day. And it's 130 chapters. Now, the Grand Historian is to Chinese history what Herodotus is to Greek history. He is the single authority on what society considered the history of their world for centuries. His work covers more than 2,000 years of Chinese history and everything from the mythical Yellow Emperor all the way to the contemporary ruling Han Emperor Wu. Now, also like Herodotus, we lose a lot of credibility in that the Grand Historian is writing very long after the events he recorded. For example, he's about 100 years after the first emperor, and he is centuries after just about everything else he's recorded. So, for the Grand Historian, Shima Qian, he was active during the dynasty after the Qin dynasty, and this dynasty was called the Han dynasty. Now, confusingly, the Han dynasty has no connection with the state of Han. That would be too easy. <laughs> so, so he's writing at a time when the current Han emperor was every bit as ruthless as the first emperor of the Qin. And it is very likely that just about most of his writings about the Qin could be slander that is just criticizing the current rulers without openly criticizing them. It's also very likely that Shima Qian, the grand historian, had projected his dislike of the current emperor through the medium of criticizing the first. Now, the grand historian's father was the official court historian who undertook a colossal task of recording the history of the world. And on his deathbed, he passed this task on to Shima Qian. So Shima Qian, the grand historian's life, takes a drastic turn. It involves our old friends, the Zhang Nu. Uh, now, the Zhang Nu were the nomadic horse archers. Now, a few decades earlier, the Zhang Nu had threatened the Han capital through military incursions and raids, and they were kept in check with a tribute of cash, silk, and importantly, beer. So at the point, the Zhang Nu tributes were upped, and even though they were upped, the Zhang Nu raided anyway. And because of this, the Han Emperor Wu was left in a very awkward position, where he couldn't exactly claim to have the mandate of heaven if he's got barbarians running amok in northern China. And even when he ups their payments and tributes, they still do it anyway. So Emperor Wu decides he's going to have to deal with the Zhang Nu. And he attacks them with the intention of pushing them back north and west and further into modern day Mongolia. Now, the Han and the Zhang Nu had a bloody back and forth with many small incursions and battles. And where our story takes off for the Grand Historian is where a Han army marches across the Gobi Desert and is virtually annihilated by an ambushing Zhang Nu force. Now, the general involved is scapegoated, and he's taking the lion's share and blame, and his name is Li Ling. Li Ling is an acquaintance of grand historian Shima Qian, and Shima Qian makes a huge political blunder in defending Li Ling. Now, it should be noted that Shima Qian records as saying, I have never so much have shared a cup of wine with this man. Yet he's defending him in court, so it's a bad mistake because the guy's being scapegoated, he's the only person who's speaking up about it, and now we're in an awkward position where you didn't need to defend this man, but you did. So by defending Li Ling, it insinuates that he must be blaming somebody else, which is probably the other generals, and very likely, the emperor. Now as a result of this, Shima Qian, the grand historian, is called to defend his statements and accusations, and he is charged. He is arrested and he is quickly convicted. And his punishment is castration. Now, castration is a known punishment at this time, but generally, if it happened, it's almost applied, especially for nobles, that you should commit suicide. It's it's um it's it's too much of a shame here. You, you should that, your next logical step is this, even to kill yourself in prison before this happens. Now, the grand historian heavily does contemplate suicide after his castration, but Remember, his father on the deathbed made him promise that he finish these grand works, these historical works, and he decides that he will not go against his father's wishes. And because of that, he must record this grand history, including all of known history up until his contemporary time, which is the Han Dynasty, and record what is there. So it is very possible the portrayal of the first emperor of the Qin is just a way to criticise the megalomaniac antics of the current emperor instead. 
So we always have to take it with a grain of salt when the Qin are being reported as decadent or they're being reported as mad or the first emperor is being reported as megalomaniac or crazy or obtuse or thick or stupid or whatever. That all of this could simply be a way that I'm insulting my current emperor, but I'm doing it by insulting a previous one that we don't know much about. So we're approaching the very end of our episode, but we're still going to do a countdown for a top three generals in this episode. Now, we did mention earlier that there's the big four commanders of the Warring States period, and we simply haven't actually co covered number four yet. He's going to show up during the lifetime of the first emperor. So meanwhile, Cahill, rolling in at number three for this episode. So number three for this episode is Bai Ki. Oh. He has four battles, four wins. His wins over expectation aren't great. It's 0.28 wins over expectation per battle, which, you know, is, is very good. It's very competent, but it's not outstanding. However, his casualties dealt over expectation is 52% higher than expected, which is far and away the highest of the Warring States period. And I think in all our Chinese episodes, we will only have one general who has more than that. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, I find even the fact that he's coming number three incredible because supposedly he is considered the number one in Chinese history. So in terms of for the Warring States period, he is the top general. So it's funny that I don't know what the history machine might attribute it to. I think it's just that it felt that he was always on the favorite side. He was never the underdog in the Battle C1. I think that's the only reason. Okay. It, I, I think he's just dragged down by, I think, one or two battles in particular where he was just given a near certain chance of victory. Um, but in all cases, he definitely kills everyone he can. <laughs> so who's going to who's gonna tell him he's the second best or the third best? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's a very fair point. Yeah. It's just, I don't, I, as I said, he had an unbeaten record. Eventually he was gotten rid of just by being executed because the fear was maybe he'll go to someone else and that's not, that's not a risk we can take. I just find it interesting that he's he's scoring definitely number one on the most aggressive, the most butcherous, and the most kind of attack oriented general. Yeah, if you're going by if you're going by casualties dealt, then yeah, he's definitely number one of the Warring States. If it's if it's just wins over expectation, then he falls to third. I think in the overall all round category of like just what makes a very good general. Uh, for whatever reason, the history machine decides that he's not doing that. Now, also, we mentioned a lot about legalism, a lot about Lord Shang, a lot about the draconian policies that perhaps he's benefiting very well from just a, you know, a well-drilled, well-equipped, well-regimented army that, you know, the history machine just looks and goes, yeah, you got the equipment, you got the you got the heavy infantry, you've, you've got the manpower. Yeah. You got this, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Still, I, I find yeah, I find that a little bit you know interesting. I was honestly, I was expecting him to be number one. Just he's you know he has got the equivalent of the Cannae battle for the Chinese. Uh, you know they brought him out of retirement eighteen years later. He was asked to take over when once they had a loss, once the momentum had had shifted, and um, he seemed to have the the knowledge and and the uh, the foresight to really understand that like and I'm not going to take over this battle because we have lost the momentum and I don't think we can we can continue. So well, I think. Where you do see it, like, we did mention the Battle of Handan, and he said, nope, I'm not going to win this, I'm not going to try. Yes. And that's that's kind of why. He, yeah. was, never, he was never the underdog. Okay. If he saw a battle that he didn't like, he wouldn't take it, which, you know, is sensible. It's the right thing to do. But the history machine doesn't like it. It wants to see against the odds wins. You're right. The history machine kind of goes, I want to put you in the biggest awkward situation ever, and the, the, the more glorious the, the victory you snatch from the jaws of defeat, the better. Yeah. So... I think he, he, it's, as I said, if we went back in time, we talked about this before, but uh, like I, I would want a sensible general if I'm just the, the foot soldier working for him. Um, and that feels a lot more sensible. But as, as you said, maybe that's why the, it doesn't like him as much. It, it doesn't probably thinks he doesn't have as much flair as much as he has a colossal butchery of, you know, <laughs> of of a career. He he doesn't have that absolute, you know, wins over expectation or the, they be able to pull it out of the bag if he absolutely has to. And he doesn't seem to be taking yeah. the risk to do it. Yeah. So anyway, that aside, coming in at number two. So number two, can kind of debate who to put number two and number one. I'm going to say number two, Lian Pao. And 
The reason I'm putting him two is because he doesn't have a third battle, so it's a bit uh, it's a bit more. He only has two battles in the database, so it's hard to get a full feel from. I like to kind of keep the minimum at three where I can. He did win both those. His wins over expectation is massive. It's 0.82. But again, that's the battle that we suspect maybe the history machine didn't know how to fully handle. And because he doesn't have, you know, a third or fourth battle to kind of temper down the average expectation, I don't know if you can say as much. But given that maybe his values are a bit more extreme, the values we have anyway is 0.82 wins over expectation, dealt out 25% more casualties than expected, and extremely extremely impressive defensively, took 40% fewer casualties than expected. So it would be nice if we had more data on him, we could rank him a bit fairly, but since we can't, I'm putting him down to number two, even though his values are more extreme. Now, I suppose we're, we can be a little bit harsh on him. I know we said, oh, we, oh, we only have the two battles, but we only have enough information to put in the two because it's like other commanders we've covered historically. They have more wins, they, they have more battles, they have more losses, we have more information, but we don't have like... We don't know what he brought to the field. We don't know how heavily involved he was. We don't, you know, so in situations like that, it's harder to gauge exactly how well they perform. And we kind of work with what we have. But interesting that it put him number two. I suppose it's it's uh it's probably it, well, it's a good indicator that obviously he's a competent, capable commander. So it it shows and it pays off. But uh, I'm still I think I'm still in a bit of shock that he, you know, that uh our old friend Bai Chi is not ranked a little bit higher than him, but that's the case. So coming in for number one for this episode so number one for this episode and you know partially as well maybe to whet the appetite for the next episode because he's not done at this point we have limu yay uh five battles four wins and a draw average wins over expectation is 0.35 and when you consider that one of those battles was a draw which is going to take down his average quite a bit that's very impressive yes. he obviously took on more challenging battles than Bai Chi did his casualties dealt aren't nearly as extreme as Bai Chi, but still very good at 70% dealt, more than expected. But the casualties sustained are more or less what you'd expect. So he, he did, he won harder battles, but he didn't maybe over, you know, he didn't maybe wipe out the enemy army the way that Bai Chi did. He, he maybe wasn't as good at dealing a knockout blow, but he could deliver a win maybe in tough, tougher circumstances than Bai Chi proved. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's funny that our number one ranking is like a very defensive commander, or a commander that's famous for his his defensive principles and his his antics and actions. Um, I love how well uh, he was able to actually deal with um, the Zhang Nu. Um, uh, that was, I think that was a lovely little kind of textbook. Uh, well, not even a textbook. I think that was just a lovely long-term strategic plan because the idea was I'm not going to waste troops. I'm not going to spend lives, you know, just frugally here. I need to understand that this is what my enemy is. I understand what they're like. I build the defensive fortifications. I make sure that people are well-fed and well-drilled and that the army is well-organized and that we we're able to communicate well and, and that we're able to deliver when we need to deliver. I think it's funny that just we use Kane as the example of you know, comparative battle earlier. And I think you do have a bit of Hannibal versus Fabian here where one is, yes, you know, maybe that one's a lot less flashy, but it kind of gets, it gets results at the end of the day. You know, it, it's, it's not as extreme, but that's kind of the point is that you're just, you're being very, very yeah. cautious, cautious. But I, I suppose it's, it's like, this sounds very silly or maybe, maybe it's a, not the best analogy, but it's sitting at a poker table with more chips than the other person's like, why am I going to raise the stakes? I don't have to. I can just bleed you dry slowly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's no way you can win this if, if over a, a long period of game. You can go all in. I don't need to do that. Although Bai Chi then, I think, is the one who's at the poker table with more chips, who then just bullies the other player by just raising to values it knows they can't handle yeah. and kind of bets that, you know, they're, they're just going to fold every time until you take them out. Pretty jerky behavior, but that's probably... Well, then again, you know, when he's deathbed, or not he's... I was going to say, you know, his 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 death phrase was along the lines of like, I was pretty big of a jerk. This this is a suitable end for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, surprises. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm both surprised that Vaichi was not number one, but also kind of impressed then that we did get to end up here with, uh, with Lai Mu instead. It's really nice to see a defensive general get the credit, especially from the mm. history machine, because normally doesn't like the defensive general so it must have saw something in him a little bit different in terms of uh maybe it's the mixture of the horse archers as well because historically whenever we have those on the scene that yeah i think i think that could be part of it as well as so the history machine whenever 
it's seen enough horse archers to know that they can really wreck what should be bigger, more organized armies an awful lot. So I think it does maybe rank that a little bit higher. Could be the case. Anyway, interesting top three list. I wouldn't have called it that way. Um, We'll probably come back to them all again later for like a final, you know, a final top list for the last episode we do here on China for this season. But all in all, very interesting stuff. So for the next episode, we are going to move on to the life and times of the first emperor because the Qin might have had that little bit of like um, a little bit of a stall, but you know, the legalism principles are still in effect and their army is still there and their state is still in a very strong position. So it just had that little setback, but the end seems inevitable. And where that end is going to come, is going to come along with the first emperor of China. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. We'll be back again soon with the uh, follow through with the first emperor. So I have been Nile, And I've been Cahill. And thanks for listening. Thank you.